I want to encourage and uh, just encourage all of you who are here this morning that you're where you should be. This is a Christian church. And that means that we are the people of God who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. We believe that God sent his son to this earth to die so that we would not have to die ourselves. And so if you're old or young, you know you have death facing you. Some of us much more quickly than we'd like to think. And if we cling to the cross of Jesus Christ and to his death, we need fear no evil in the valley of the shadow of death because Jesus Christ is our Savior. Now, I want to talk to you this morning about one test of whether or not you are a Christian. And that's one thing that will immediately define our church as being different than probably most churches in this community. And that is that we think that you should be testing yourself to see if you are in the faith. We don't believe that because you simply have prayed a sinner's prayer or gone forward at at an evangelistic meeting or sent in a card to the radio program you listen to, that you are necessarily a Christian. The Bible is filled with commands to test ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. Um, The Apostle Paul says that he tests himself, and he's the author of most of the New Testament epistles. And so it's appropriate for us to not be uh, hardened and callous and cheap with the things of God, but to realize that there's nothing that's more important in our lives than salvation, whether or not God has forgiven us. And so I ask you this morning at the beginning of this time of studying the Word of God, whether God has forgiven you. Has God forgiven you? Now, the question is not whether or not God is willing to forgive you. Jesus did say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So it is very clear that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for any man's sin. The question isn't whether there's a potential for forgiveness. The question is whether God has forgiven you. Are you in Christ? Are you saved? Are you born again? Do you belong to God? Are you a slave of Jesus or a slave of Satan? The scriptures tell us that it's one or the other. There's no third option. There's no DMZ, demilitarized zone, where you can exist and be halfway between God and Satan. You're either a slave of Satan or a slave of God. Are you a Christian? Now, theoretically, everybody would say, well, yeah, that's why I'm here. I wouldn't be here if I weren't a Christian. Well, in fact, there are some of you who still don't claim the name of Christ. And I honor you. I honor you. In America today, it's very difficult to acknowledge that uh, there are non-Christians. When we were up in Wisconsin in a small little town, occasionally I'd say to somebody, are you a Christian? My favorite time was the time when... uh, I guess I won't name them for your sake, Mary, <laughs> since Mary would know them. But I remember this cute couple. He was a favorite basketball player on the team, short. His parents owned one of the bars downtown. And uh, he showed up at church one time during the week with a, a pretty young blonde woman who, uh, whose parents uh, had their names on the inactive list of our church, but I don't think I ever saw them inside the door. And uh, I remember um, them telling me they wanted to get married, and then it came out that she was uh, with child, and 
and uh, they wanted to get married at a certain date. And so I began to ask them about their spiritual commitments. And I said, you know, a church is a nice place to have a formal beginning to a marriage. And everybody does think they should get married in a church. But let me ask you the question. Um, why are you coming to the church? Is it because you belong to Jesus and at the beginning of your marriage you want to make your vows before God in the witness of his people in the context of a worship service? And they're both sitting there going, yeah, yeah, you know. And I said, well, you understand that you will be making a public confession that you're a Christian. And I said, is that true? And I turned to the man, and I, I actually liked him a lot. I'd watched him play basketball, and there was a generosity of spirit and cheerfulness to him that I just found very endearing. And I turned to him, and I said, you know, Joe, I said, Joe, are you a Christian? And he says, no. And I loved him. And then I turned to her, and I said, how about you, Mary? And she said, oh, yes. And then it was priceless. He turns and he looks at her. He goes, you is not. (laughs) What do you mean I'm not? You wouldn't act the way you does if you was a Christian. And I lost it. I just started laughing. (laughs) It was so delightful. Aren't pagans beautiful they're not hypocrites nah you are not you wouldn't do the things you do if you were a christian so are you a christian are you a christian now today we're going to read a text that is probably one of the best indicators of whether or not you're a christian and it's found at the sermon on the mount at the end where jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray And he gives them the Lord's Prayer. And then listen to what happens afterwards. This is Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. Jesus says, this is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, we don't repeat. Then he says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then we don't repeat what comes next, but notice the context. He says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but... If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now let me ask, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? I said earlier that we would deal with one of the best indications of whether or not we're Christians, one of the best tests. And it is right here. That if we forgive others their transgressions, our Heavenly Father will also forgive us. But if we do not forgive others, then our Father will not forgive our transgressions. And then earlier in the Lord's Prayer, and many of us have repeated it thousands of times in our life, it says, 
Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, Augustine, the early Christian father of the church, referred to this petition in the Lord's Prayer as the awful petition. And the reason is that we are, in, in, in God's presence, we're saying, as. And what that means is, you do to me as I do to others. If I don't forgive others, then you don't forgive me. If I do forgive others, then you do forgive me. We're tying it to our own actions, aren't we? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so here we have a very clear statement from Jesus Christ. And if we look in Scripture, what we see is that this theme of forgiveness was humongous in Jesus' ministry. He was hitting it constantly. Uh, And as he leads us through this prayer, we see the petitions having to do with us instead of God. We see two of them are spiritual. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, forgive us our debts. And the third one having to do with us is what? The third one is, give us this day our daily bread. So we have two petitions that deal with our souls and one with our body. Is that the proportion that we live? Well, you can look at me and say, no, it's not his proportion. I had the discouraging uh, information come from my son who was uh, measured his girth. For life insurance. And of course, if you know Joseph, you know he has no girth. And uh, the woman that was measuring him told him that the real danger zone is after 40. Well, (laughs) and so we look at ourselves and we say, how much attention do we give to food? Do we give to money? Do we give to shelter? Do we give to our cars? Do we give to going to Sportsplex or going to... uh, any of the places that we can tend our idols. And then we look at the fact that the Lord's Prayer has two petitions having to do with our souls and only one for our body, and the one for our body is, give us this day our daily bread. Watson says, daily bread satisfies the appetite, but forgiveness satisfies the conscience. Isn't that beautiful? Does your conscience have a hunger? And is that hunger for forgiveness? I look out this morning and I see some of you who are going to be married soon. And I hope you'll listen very carefully to this theme of our Lord on forgiveness. Let me read a little bit that Jesus says about forgiveness. And Matthew 18 is a very extensive section that Jesus gives us on forgiveness. And he says this. It's occasioned by Peter coming up and saying to Jesus, Matthew 18:21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Those of you about to be married, listen carefully. How often shall my husband, my wife, my child, my parents, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter was very generous, wasn't he? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's like saying a Google in Hebrew to a Jew. 
For this reason, Jesus went on, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. And so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now, at that point, we can deal with the story because the story's what goes on in this sinful world. But then, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says this, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So you see what's going on here? What's going on is that Jesus says this is how his father will treat us. In Mark 11:25 and 26, Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Luke 6:37 Do not judge and you will not be judged and do not condemn and you will not be condemned pardon and you will be pardoned Luke 17:3 and 4 Jesus says Be on your guard if your brother sins rebuke him and if he repents forgive him and if he sins against you 7 times a day and returns to you 7 times saying I repent forgive him And so, Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is very, very clear. We are to forgive. And God has connected His forgiveness of us to our forgiveness of others. Now, in case we were to think that Jesus is like our Father, and He tells us to do as He says and not as He does, Then we look at the cross and we see Jesus hanging on the cross, innocent, without blemish. And on the cross, we read in Luke 23, 34, that Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. So here is a salve, a bandage, a potion, a lotion, a healing agent for tender consciences. If we want to know whether or not we are saved and belong to Jesus Christ, 
we need to examine our hearts and see if we have a forgiving spirit. If so, we have one encouragement that we belong to him who is merciful and long-suffering. If, however, our spirit is not a forgiving spirit, the question we should be asking ourselves is, what confidence do we have that God will go against the rule that he sets down here when he says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Thomas Watson says, By this touchstone we may test whether our sins are pardoned. We don't need to climb up to heaven to see whether our sins are forgiven, but only look into our own hearts. Are we a forgiving spirit? Can we bury injuries? Can we pay back good for evil? This would be a good sign that we are forgiven by God. If we can find all these things wrought in our souls, they are happy signs that our sins are pardoned. They are good letters of reference to show for heaven. Now I want to illustrate this with two uh, Two stories, both coming out of the civil rights movement of the 60s. The first story illustrates a lack of forgiveness, and the second story illustrates the presence of forgiveness. The first story has to do with George Wallace. Now, many of you don't know who George Wallace was. You may know the name, but you don't know who he was. George Wallace was the governor. In fact, he was called governor of Alabama. And George Wallace stood against integration. Federal orders came down, and George Wallace used the state police to attack civil rights marchers. George Wallace was also the one that stood against the admission of any black students to the University of Alabama. In 1968... George Wallace was so popular for his racist position that he ran for president of these United States, and he actually got a lot of votes. Um, Then in 1972, George Wallace uh, was attacked by a would-be assassin. The assassin didn't kill him, but the bullet made him a cripple. And at the point of this story which is the 30th anniversary celebration of the March on Selma from Selma to Montgomery. At the point of this story, the people that George Wallace is with are celebrating the 30th anniversary of that march. And George Wallace has now been in his wheelchair for a third of his life. He's 75, and he's been in the wheelchair from the age of 50 to 75. During that time, he has spent most of it apologizing to blacks for his racism and for the positions he took, admitting clearly it was a sin and trying to be as personal and direct to individuals in asking their forgiveness for his crimes. And so here we are down in uh, Montgomery, Alabama on March 10, 1995. There are about 20 marchers there celebrating the 30th anniversary of the march. All right. And George Wallace is there, and he is reaching out. He is so feeble that he is not able to speak publicly. He has an aide read his statement to the people. But he's reaching out to anybody he can and touching them and saying, I love you. 
Twenty marchers, mostly black, gathered. For ten years he had been admitting the wrongness of his deeds thirty years ago. Now, 30, years, 30 yards away, there was a 58-year-old man named Rufus Vanable in the shade of a tall pine tree. And Rufus Vanable told the reporter that he would not hear George Wallace's appeals for forgiveness. This is what Mr. Vanable said. He said, I'm not even interested in what he's saying. Vanable, a retired construction worker, part of the march that was bloodied on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, and he said this, he said, quote, if you had lived through it, you would not either be interested in what he's saying. If he thinks this will ease his mind in some way, let him do it. I'm not interested in looking at his face. It brings back too many memories. Seeing him say that he's sorry isn't going to do me any good at all. Like many others in the crowd, he said that Mr. Wallace, a religious man, was trying more to clear a path to heaven than to soothe the painful memories of others. Quote, he's trying to get right with his maker, that's what he's doing, Mr. Vanable said. He's been about to die for the last ten years and he's still living, Mr. Vanable said. Quote, God's going to make him pay. Now, contrasting that, we have another African-American, Reverend Evan E. McDonald, who is the pastor, or was at the time, of Golden Grove Missionary Baptist Church in Meridian, Mississippi. He also had suffered through much racism in the Deep South, and 25 years prior... <clears throat> One of the men who was indicted for the killing of three civil rights workers depicted in the movie many of you might have seen called Mississippi Burning was a man who was named Rainey, Hesheba County Sheriff Lawrence Rainey. And Rainey had been indicted along with about 25 other people for violating the civil rights of these men. He'd ended up being acquitted of violating their civil rights. And so now, 25 years later, this pastor, Reverend Evan E. McDonald, was pastor of a church of about 20 to 30 people. He had been the pastor of this church for 17 years. And in the course of his business, he ran a security business. He hired this man who had been acquitted on these charges, Lawrence Rainey. And People Magazine got a hold of it. And People Magazine published the fact that this man he had hired had been one of the men uh, indicted for the uh, violation of the civil rights of these three young men who were black who had been murdered. And so here we have Reverend McDonald, and in his last sermon, he has had so much opposition for, from his people for hiring this man that he preaches his last sermon on what theme? Well, on the, God, the love and the forgiveness of God. And it is his last sermon because he's booted by his congregation. He spoke of God's love and forgiveness and it was his final sermon. And this is what he said prior to the sermon. He said, quote, some of the people real close to me said as long as that man was working for me, there would be no peace in that church. And I told them that I would leave for peace's sake. 
He also reported to the reporter that wrote up this story that his business in security was not flourishing because potential clients were avoiding it because of his hiring. My favorite part of the story is that the reporter goes to Hervey Spinks of Meridian, who was chairman of Golden Grove's deacons, in other words, their elders, and asked for a comment and that Hervey Spinks would not comment on his pastor's resignation. When it comes to race in our nation, we have a lot to account for, don't we? And when it comes to Reformed, Southern Reformed and Presbyterian people, we have a lot to account for, don't we? Maybe you don't know, but we do. I remember having an African-American pastor from California uh, come to speak at our church, and afterwards, Sunday evening, we went over to the Hooper's house, and we sat and talked with him, and he said, you know, it's impossible to get... Uh, blacks to listen to reform doctrine because all they can remember is that it was Presbyterians who defended slavery in the South. He said, blacks don't want to hear Presbyterians. When we think about our history as a nation, racially, we think about our history in our states, we think about our cities, we think about our churches, we think about our homes, we think about our marriages, and we think about the issue of forgiveness. And on every single level, there are just absolutely huge objections that we come up to, that we come up with to avoid forgiveness. And where do you go in the world and escape this? Where do you go? I look out at you and I look at the countries of origin of some of you. I remember the time when I had a Mongolian woman in the office with a, a real burden that she as a Christian needed to deal with. And I made the stupid, stupid mistake of thinking that since she was Mongolian and therefore Asian, that if I knew another Asian woman that I thought would be helpful to her, that I should just suggest another Asian woman. So I said, well, you know, I know a Chinese woman. And immediately it was clear that and in fact, she said to me, I'd rather go to a Russian for help than a Chinese. And so I learned the feelings of people from Mongolia towards the Chinese. How about blondes towards brunettes? How about pom-poms to cheerleaders? How about soccer to basketball? Basketball to football, wrestling to cross country? Guys that wear black turtlenecks and guys that wear bow ties. Now, we laugh at that kind of stuff, but isn't it little things like that that make us feel superior to one another? Make us look down at people? Some people don't, don't have any respect for God's house, and look at how they dress. Some people are prigs. You know, look at them. They think they're special. Look at his bow tie. You know, some people are in the hard sciences. And some people are in the liberal arts. Some people are biologists and some are cosmologists. Some people now, you know, I'm using illustrations that are easy for us to buy into 
They're funny. You know, one of the consequences of the sexual depravity that our Supreme Court has allowed and, in fact, encouraged in our country is that our nation is now filled with fathers who have sexually molested their own children and who have not defended their daughters from their brothers. And our churches are filled with people who have had men take advantage of them in the most awful way. So I'm trying not to look at you because of how many of you there are here. And I know it. Many of you, I know it personally. And surely God wouldn't call you to forgive the man who raped you. To forgive the stepfather. To forgive your mother who allowed your stepfather to do it to you. Surely God would not expect forgiveness to go to that. And Jesus says what? What does Jesus say? What he says is what? He says what? He says, well, go to a pastor and enter into a six-month period of counseling where your pastor will encourage you to talk about your father in such a way that with a godly pursuit, you will dishonor your father and your mother. You know, or find a, find a psychiatrist, take some drugs. But never, ever, ever will you be told to forgive. Because, of course, we couldn't ask a woman to forgive a man who raped her, could we? And if you're pregnant by the rape, we'll give you a morning-after pill and kill the unborn child. Because nobody could ever ask you to forgive, could they? You could not have in your home, at your breast, a living reminder of the violence done to you by a man, could you? No man, no man with a heart would ever ask you to do that. You know something? Many of the children born to lawful marriages are born and are a living reproach to their mothers every single day of the lovelessness of their husbands. Ask yourself this question. What have we done to God? What have you done to God? What have you done to God? In the course of counseling as a pastor, I often run into people who are very bitter and whose lives are being consumed with a lack of forgiveness and bitterness and vengeance against other individuals. Their whole lives are consumed by that. Some people live out their lives attacking certain sins, just spewing venom at people, trying to get legislation that's passed, always, always attacking certain sins. Why? Well, because when they were a child, they were sinned against in that way. And so they spend the rest of their lives in revenge mode. So what about you? Can you imagine if God approached us the way we approach other sinners? Look at Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But we have 20-20 vision when it comes to what other people are doing to us, don't we? 
Oh, man, we know exactly that they meant that evil. Every single person that goes slowly around the roundabout is intentionally doing that because they want to delay me getting to church. And every person that goes slow when the light's about to turn yellow is intentionally doing that because they know we're behind them. And every person that speeds up when it widens into four lanes and I try to get past them is intentionally doing that because they know I'm going to pass them and they have such small egos that they can't handle somebody passing them. Now, I know none of you ever think that way, right? And your wife, she's intentionally having broccoli tonight because she knows you hate it. She forgot to put cheese on it because she knows you only eat it when it has cheese on it. When it comes to other sins against us, many of which aren't sins at all, we have 20-20 vision. We're absolutely convinced that people's motives are spiteful, that they did it precisely so they could get at us. <laughs> and then, just once in a blue moon, what do we do? We go to them and say, did you know you hurt me? I mean, that in itself is a miracle that we'd ever go to somebody and admit they hurt us. No, 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 bam! You know, forget asking them. Let's just assume the worst. Well, if we ever go to them, how many times, be honest now, how many times have you found out that they were, A, oblivious, B, didn't do what you thought they did, C, it was the wrong word, you heard one word, they said another one. I mean, there are an infinite number of mistakes that we make in judging others harshly. All the time we do it, don't we? But boy, we got 20-20 vision when it comes to people hurting us, don't we? They meant it. They meant it for our evil. And we know. My favorite example of this, and many of you who are a part of this church long term know it, is the day that, uh, well, again, I won't name her, but a woman that we were quite close to was playing the piano. And I knew this woman was scared out of her wits about playing the piano for worship. And as I was greeting at the door as they came in, because I had to do two churches each Sunday morning, and so I'd greet before worship at the first, then run into town to get to the other worship and greet after worship there. So as I'm greeting in the door, I listen to her playing, and it's just beautiful. It's very, very reverent. It's very well done. So as I go up to the platform, I make a... I make a uh, a detour over to the piano and I lean over and as she's finishing up her playing I whisper something in her ear and then I go and I preach lead worship and the next day my wife comes in and says to me uh, so and so is on the phone and wants to talk to you and I said about what and she said well she's called because she said that she wants to forgive you And I say, well, that's, you know, good. Do you know what for? And she said, no, she didn't say that. She just said she was listening to Dr. Dobson on the radio, and the Lord convicted her that she needed to forgive you. So I pick up the phone, and I say, hello. And she says, hello, I just want you to know I'm going to forgive you. And I said, thank you. What are you forgiving me for? She said, well, you know. And I said, well, actually, I don't. So could you, like, tell me? And she said, well, what you said yesterday. I said, what I said when? And she said, you know. 
I said, actually, I don't. Well, when you were on the way to the pulpit. Yeah. What did you think I said? You know what you said. I said, well, I can't remember right now what I did say, but I, it wasn't anything that I need to be forgiven for. Oh, it was too. I said, will you tell me what you heard? And she said, well, you leaned over and you whispered in my ear, P-U. And I said to her, Ruth, do you know me? Yeah, I do. I said, does that sound like something I'd say to somebody when I'm walking onto the platform? Especially somebody who's very intimidated about playing the piano. I'd lean over and I'd say, P-U, and then go lead worship. She said, well, no, it didn't make any sense to me at all. And I said, well, it didn't make sense because you're right. I didn't do it. She said, well, then what did you say? And I thought for a second. Then I remembered what I'd said. I'd leaned over and I'd gone, beautiful. But, of course, she had gone to the other old women in the church who also played and told them what I'd said. And they would maybe have been prepared to believe I'd said that. And so there was a whole wildfire going across the church because I'd told her P-U when I'd actually said be beautiful. And that's about the level of our forgiveness and our bitterness and our revenge. Many times we completely misinterpret what's been said. Many times we attribute the worst possible motive to other people. And people, we love to nurse our grudges. Revenge, what does Homer say? Revenge is sweet as dripping honey. Now, anybody that reads this text is going to ask themselves, what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying that when we forgive others, that that is the work that God requires before he'll forgive us? In other words, is this one place where our works produce God's action? Is this a place where we're saved by works and not by grace, and the works that we have to do are forgiveness? And the answer is no. The point isn't that if we forgive our sins, that then God will forgive our sins. The point is that if we don't forgive others their sins against us, God will not. In other words, God is inextricably binding to our forgiveness by him, our forgiveness of others. It's not that our forgiveness of others produces God's forgiveness. It's that he says he will not forgive us if we do not forgive others. And so look at your heart and ask yourself, do you have a forgiving spirit? Do you cultivate good actions and kindness towards those who have hurt you? Cultivate them. We have a lot of ways of acting like we forgive when it has nothing to do with forgiveness. 
The chief one today is we simply define out of existence sin. Over in Western Europe, what are they doing? They're lowering the age of uh, consent. This is a way you deal with the uh, oppression of older people against younger people sexually. You just lower the age of consent. You say that it's a natural part of growing up to have sexual experiences, and actually it's good to have them with your family members because it's a safe environment. And so the, the age of consent is being lowered, and that will happen in our country soon. That's the entire basis of the Kinsey Institute, if you don't know it. Now, I don't... Let me correct this. I am not saying that the Kinsey Institute is seeking the lowering of the age of accountability. I'm saying the entire research, which is the basis for the reputation, it was done on the backs of those who, who abused underage children. They knew it. They were not prosecuted. That's the basis of the research. That's what I'm saying. Now, coming back to us, how do we define sin out of existence so we don't have to forgive? Oh, it's nothing. That didn't hurt me. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. He didn't hurt me. I didn't like him anyhow. And so no offense meant, no offense given, and we just say, there is no sin. You know, there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no sin. Is that forgiveness? No. Because forgiveness looks at God in his holiness and sees the nature of truth, looks full in the face of the sin, and says, there but for the grace of God go I also, and says, I forgive you. Forgiveness is never about minimizing the holiness of God in the relationships of men and women. Forgiveness, true forgiveness, cultivates a deep awareness of the violation of the character of God in our relationships with other people. That's one way. What are other ways? Well, other ways that we claim to forgive but don't really forgive is when we say you're forgiven and then nurse the grudge in our hearts. In other words, we lie. We say, I forgive you, and we don't. And how often we see that in the church where you get together with two people who are angry at each other and you talk it through in front of you. They talk it back and forth and then they finally ask each other to forgive. Then a few months later, what do you hear? That that person's been spreading the story of how this person hurt them through the church. This is the reason why somebody was disciplined recently in this church. Happened again and again and again. They were offended. Then they went and met with somebody. They forgave them. They received forgiveness. They gave forgiveness. And then guess what? The story's told again. And it happens again and again and again. That's not forgiveness. What does that person believe about himself? That person believes that he is perfect and that everybody else is wrong. Right? How can you know God and think that everybody else is wrong and you're right? How can you know yourself? If true religion is knowing yourself and knowing God, what indication is there that you know Jesus Christ if you have a bitter spirit and you spend your life being punitive to other people?
The fact that you were raped, the fact that you were abused, the fact that you were beaten. There are many men here who were beaten by their mother mercilessly. The fact that you had whites treat you like scum because you're Hispanic. The fact that you had Hispanics treat you like scum because you're... None of this matters, people, before God. Because Jesus was perfect. He came to redeem us and we killed him. And we're going to go and be punitive our whole lives. Our identity is going to be being a victim. Our whole lives is going to be consumed with bitterness. To what end? Will it help us? You know, back at the time when Watson was writing on the text, it was very common for men to engage in duels. And that was how they salvaged their reputation when somebody offended them. And here's what Watson says about duels on this text. He says, quote, Consider the folly, consider the foolishness of challenging another to a duel. It is little wisdom for a man to redeem his credit by losing his life. And to run to hell to be counted valorous. And listen, I've been a pastor long enough. I've been in enough appointments with people consumed by bitterness to know that in the church today, there are many people who are willing to go to hell to make somebody pay. Your entire life is defined by a lack of forgiveness. And you'll go to hell to prove yourself right. And if there ever ever is such a thing as a Pyrrhic victory, that's it. Now, here's the opposite side. Forgive. You know that scene with that dude, Bob Newberry, or whatever his name is? Saturday Night Live skit? Huh? Newhart, yeah, Newhart, thank you, yeah. Just stop it. Stop it. Just forgive. Look at Jesus. And he says that he delights in forgiveness of sins. He says he is the God who forgives sins. So if you have had your sins forgiven by God, your many awful, awful sins then look at that person and forgive them. And it glorifies God. And don't worry, God's a good account keeper. You don't have to keep account. He does perfectly. He knows whether the guy said P-U or B-U-tiful. And you can forgive As a matter of fact, if the reason that you don't forgive is that you have never received God's forgiveness for your sins, cultivate your knowledge of your own sin. Cultivate it. Don't resist it. When your wife points it out to you, say, thank you, sweetheart. That was your greatest act of love today. Cultivate your knowledge of your own sinfulness. And take your sinfulness before God and say, Father, have mercy on me, for I am no longer worthy to be called by your name. I am a wicked, sir. Just make me a slave to you. 
And then the father, what? While you're still a long way off, will be running to embrace you and will kill the fatted calf and will welcome you home. And then guess what? You will have a forgiving spirit. I'm going to end with my favorite poem ever. One of you knows what it is. It's a poem written a long time ago by a man who spent a lot of time in his life thinking he was dying and meditating on his own death. And this is what he wrote, and it's called A Hymn to God the Father. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? In other words, many, many times. Will you forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? Will you forgive that sin through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore, but swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done. I fear no more. Come to Jesus. Don't look at other people's sin. Some of you are sitting here right now thinking, I can't come to Jesus because if I come to Jesus, my husband will never repent of his adultery. He'll just feel superior to me. Come to Jesus. And you want to know whether or not you've come to Jesus? There's a surefire way. A surefire way of testing. And what is that method? That method is this. From our Lord's mouth directly, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's the test. Let's pray.